When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello everyone and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today I'm delighted to talk to Dr. Sheikh Fayez Jaffa. You're most welcome, sir. Thank you so much for having me. Most welcome. Dr. Sheikh Fayez Jaffa is the research scholar for the Islamic Center at New York University and an associate chaplain for the Center of Global and Spiritual Life at NYU. He holds a doctorate in education from New York University with a focus on the identity development of Shia youth in the United States. Pursuing the classical course of Islamic education, he studied in the seminary of Karbala in Iraq, one of the most prominent centers uh, for Islamic learning. As a highly sought after lecturer and religious leader, he regularly leads prayer services and delivers sermons across North America. In addition to his roles at NYU's Islamic Center, Dr. Sheikh Jaffa serves as an assistant professor of public service of NYU's Robert F. Wagner Graduate School of Public Service, where he teaches courses on Islamic law and Islamic spirituality. And his research has appeared in academic journals. Today, he has kindly agreed to explain to us the Shia understanding of Islam. So, sir, over to you. Thank you. Thank you so much again for, for having me. You know, I think one of the you know, first points that I would like to make is that whenever we talk about Islam more broadly, um, Shia, the Shia sort of narrative or Shia theology gets posited as an outlier. And this it often needs to be explained within the frame of Islam as if it's something very, very different. Mm. Um, and so I've prepared a couple of slides that I wanted to, uh, you know, share with you all that would, you know, allow for us to hopefully get a little bit of an introductory understanding toward um, the Shia narrative or the Shia tradition of Islam. And then mm. I, you know, of course, look forward to, to engaging in conversation with you. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. Here we go. Great. Um, so the way that I often like to see religion, you know, sort of within my own lens or within my own perspective or the way that I teach uh, my students um, here at New York University is to understand understand religion more broadly um, or particularly the religion of Islam in sort of three primary dimensions. Mm. The first dimension being um, the religion's sort of core values that around theology, belief and its origins. What does this group of people believe? And in this case, what do Shia Muslims believe? Mm. Um, secondly, and thereafter, um, the ethical and spiritual tradition um, that is framed within um, that larger narrative of what do Shia Muslims believe. So in other words, what is ethics? What is spirituality uh, within the framework of the Shia tradition of Islam? Um, and then thirdly, 
Uh, and finally, uh, law and jurisprudence, being that um, Shia Muslims have a distinct um, sort of methodology in terms of their approach toward aspects around law and jurisprudence. And to just give um, viewers who may not be so familiar with Islam, uh, you know, just a little bit of a quick rundown. Um, you know, Muslims are approximately, uh, you know, close to 2 billion people, 1.7, 1.8 billion people across the world. Um, and Shia Muslims amount for approximately 10 to 12 to 15 percent. You know, varying statistics uh, speak to uh, different realities around the specific number uh, of those who identify as, as, as Shia Muslims. Um, so let's start the conversation with a little bit of a sort of, you know, periphery understanding of, um, you know, theology, belief and origins of, of, of Shia uh, Islam. Uh, firstly, you know, when we come to, you know, aspects and matters around theology more broadly, there are sort of three very fundamental um, positions that Muslims take. And that is a belief in one God uh, in a monotheistic tradition. Um, secondly, this notion of divine leadership or a belief and conviction in the Prophet Muhammad, um, the sixth century figure from the Arabian Peninsula, who Muslims believe to be the final prophet and messenger of God, and an individual and personality who receives revelation. Um, that revelation is known as the Quran. Um, and then thirdly, in afterlife, um, the notion and the idea that human beings, they don't live for this world, but rather there is a world beyond um, this one. Mm. And, um, you know, in comparison to, um, and sort of I bracket this point by saying that, again, oftentimes when we speak about the Shia tradition of Islam, it's often gets bracketed under the larger framework of the Sunni tradition of, of, of Islam. Um, there are certain differences with regards to perspective around understanding notions around uh, the prophethood of Muhammad or certain details um, with regards to successorship. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. After the Prophet Muhammad, which we'll talk about in a little while. And undoubtedly, you know, certain matters, um, you know, that differ with regards to, you know, realities in the afterlife, meaning mm -hmm. what do, uh, what happens in paradise? Does everyone get to paradise? These sorts of conversations and questions uh, that are founded within many, you know, theological, uh, theological circles. Mm. Um, in addition to, in chapter two of the Quran, in verse 285, the, the verse that's mentioned up here on the slide, um, which is, which is oft sort of quoted and, 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 and popularized within many Muslim circles, it speaks to belief in things other than you know, God and the Prophet Muhammad and a world beyond this one. And that is a belief in the Quran, which again, Muslims believe to be as the word of God as revealed to the Prophet Muhammad uh, via, for instance, this angel uh, known as Gabriel, uh, as well as the books or the revelation that was um, sent and distributed or revealed toward the prophets that preceded Muhammad. Uh, mm. So in other words, personalities like that of Moses and Jesus and David and so on and so forth. Um, Shia Muslims also have a conviction in all of these um, central prophetic figures. And maybe I'll just open up one other quick parenthesis and say that um, in Islam, um, the belief of prophets 
um, is that they are individuals who are representatives of God on earth. They have a specific task designated toward preaching to community, not the often thrown around term uh, of prophethood that is similar to that within the Judeo-Christian tradition of someone who has the ability to sort of foretell the truth. Uh, but but to just to clarify, mate, uh, I've heard some people claim that uh, the Quran that the, the Shias have is different from the Quran that the Sunnis have. I mean, that's clearly false, isn't it? We have exactly the same Quran, exactly the same number of surahs. Yes, it? yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yes, uh, Shia believe Shia Muslims believe in the same exact Quran as Sunni Muslims. Uh, 114 chapters, beginning with uh, Al-Fatiha, concluding with An-Nas. Um, if you go to a mosque in Mecca or if you go to a mosque in, uh, you know, in anywhere in Iran, you're going to find the same exact Quran. The Quran that I have in my home uh, here in New York is the same Quran as that you'll, you know, that you'll find in, um, you know, anywhere, anywhere across, uh, in anywhere London else. or in Paris yeah. or anywhere else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Just for Thank you for that. No, for sure. Absolutely. Um, and then, of course, you know, Muslims more broadly, as well as Shia Muslims, believe in angels, mm-hmm. um, these angels who are designated with certain tasks given to them uh, by, by God. Um, so what exactly then does this term Shia mean in the first place? Um, and so we break it down kind of into a linguistic meaning and then the applied meaning, uh, at least mm-hmm. the way that, that's the way that I break it down over here really quickly. Um, linguistically, the word Shia in the Arabic language means the partisan of, the supporter of, the friend of. Um, while in its application or the way that it's understood sort of within the framework of religious or Islamic theology, uh, it's understood as someone who is a partisan of or supporter of Ali, mm-hmm. uh, Ali being the son-in-law and the cousin of the Prophet Muhammad. Right. Um, and to understand this contextually, um, the biggest sort of debate um, amongst Muslims from the first century, probably until this very day, is regarding who virtually speaks for Islam after the Prophet Muhammad. Um, And sort of the Shia belief is that Ali, this uh, individual who is, again, the son-in-law, cousin of the Prophet Muhammad, um, was chosen to be the individual who speaks on behalf of Islam um, after uh, the Prophet Muhammad passes away. Um, Thereafter, there, you know, the, 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 the belief is such um, amongst um, believers within um, the Shia tradition, that this notion of leadership, or again, who speaks for Islam, falls within um, the framework of spe- specified individuals from within the family of the Prophet Muhammad. Let me just say this point just to clarify. Um, Shia Muslims believe that um, those who speak for Islam or those who have this notion of divine authority um, have been appointed by God. And it's not such that they were personalities that were determined um, on, solely on the basis of hereditary sort of values or of blood sort of relations, but rather it is that this family was chosen and sort of, um, you know, uh, appointed by the Prophet Muhammad, but by chosen by God um, in order to sort of fulfill this duty and task. And I will say that um, personalities like that of Ali, as well as those other close family members that are oft revered within the Shia tradition, are also um, highly revered within the Sunni uh, sort of narrative of Islam as well, particularly personalities like that of Ali, like I said, um, his wife Fatima, who's the daughter of the Prophet Muhammad, and then their two sons, Hassan and Hussein, um, are sort of central uh, figures within um, kind of religious piety um, within the framework of of of, uh, of Muslims more broadly. Hmm. Okay. 
So what are the origins then of Shia Islam? Where did, where did sort of this, um, this narrative kind of formulate uh, and so on is, a, is sort of an oft question um, or a common question that is, that is oft asked. Hmm. Um, I, I just note down a very, very sort of quick, uh, quick pointers over here and perhaps we can have a conversation about some of them later. Um, it's important to note that, you know, the, the Shia narrative, um, Shia Muslims would suggest that this, uh, that this community lived during the time of the Prophet Muhammad. In other words, that there was already, um, there was already a difficulty or a challenge amongst um, early Muslims with regards to who they would take instruction from um, after the Prophet Muhammad passes away. And there seemingly was, um, you know, some challenges intra-community during the lifetime of the, of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, and so within the Shia Muslim tradition, there is a strong emphasis on this notion that during the prophetic period himself, of the Prophet Muhammad himself, that he oft stated that after me, um, it's important for you to resort to uh, Ali as the authority after me. Of course, um, within you know, different sects and denominations of Islam, there would be people who would contest that. Um, and so some of the most sort of primary evidences used to support this notion um, is firstly a famous tradition known as the Hadith of Al-Thaqalain, or the tradition of the two um, heavy things. Uh, in which the Prophet Muhammad states that um, I, I am leaving for you two things after I pass away. Uh, they are the Quran and my family. And these two realities will never separate from one another. So in other words, hold steadfast to these two and you will find success in this world and, and in the next. Um, and this was a statement that was uttered by the Prophet Muhammad. And many would argue, many Shia Muslims would argue that this is strong evidence to suggest that um, the family of the Prophet are those who are um, sort of in line and the sort of ultimate interpreters of the Quran and sort of the ultimate destination of individuals to follow uh, after the Prophet Muhammad. Um, uh, thereafter, there's another famous uh, event uh, within early Islamic history known as the event of Ghadir, in which, um, in which the Prophet Muhammad, he tells the early Muslim community um, that Ali is, has the authority known as walaya uh, over the Muslim community. And this term um, is debated amongst early Muslim scholars in terms of exactly what it means. But Shia Muslims believe that Ali was um, appointed to assume the position of religious leadership uh, spiritual authority, uh, as well as political authority um, after the Prophet Muhammad passes uh, away. Um, if we fast forward just about 50 years past, uh, after the life of the Prophet Muhammad, there was this famous incident within early Islamic history um, known as the Battle of Karbara, in which the grandson of the Prophet Muhammad, the son of Ali and Fatima, who we mentioned earlier, uh, a, a man by the name of Hussein, mm -hmm. um, he, along with his family members, were killed and massacred um, in a city no, uh, known as Karbara in, in, uh, in Iraq. Uh, and they were killed by the individuals who had claimed the position of caliphate or of religious authority during that day, which at that moment kind of created a lot of upheaval um, and sort of debate and conversation around who exactly speaks for Islam. If this man has just killed an individual who was so revered, um, during the early tradition, the grandson of the Prophet Muhammad, 
And that sort of spills over into creating a whole host of other conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, so just keeping in mind now, kind of going back to going back to some of this, you know, um, these, these early origins, um, what exactly then are the sources of knowledge um, where Shia Muslims deduce um, evidences from, so to say? Uh, more broadly, uh, Muslims have two primary sources of knowledge. Um, sources of knowledge, meaning knowledge that allows for the individual to assume a position that's closer in proximity to God. If we take one really, really quick step back, um, Islam, if we translate that particular term linguistically, it means submission. Uh, Muslims are individuals who submit. Submit to whom? Submit to this monotheistic, all-powerful, all-hearing, all-seeing, all-omnipotent, all-merciful, all-just, uh, all loving, all caring God. Mm-hmm. And the ultimate sort of, uh, you know, point of, you know, conversation that we mentioned earlier around, you know, who speaks for Islam after the Prophet Muhammad, at the end of the day, it all goes back to this really important reality, which is who speaks for Islam? Because at the end of the day, my responsibility, the responsibility of any believer in the religious tradition is to at- attain a sense of spiritual proximity to God. That's sort of the fundamental and foundation of the religion of Islam. God created us with a purpose. We want to fulfill that purpose. God created us to be an individual who was able to reach uh, an ultimate sort of height of perfection uh, with regards to our nobility, with regards to, you know, being just and generous and patience, you know, virtually manifesting all of the most sublime and perfect qualities. And so who speaks for Islam and how we take direction to get to that ultimate goal um, naturally is, 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 of, is of importance. Um, and so Muslims utilize the Quran as their sort of primary framework or textbook, so to say, or manual mm-hmm. with regard to how to get back to God, how to understand this God. Uh, the Quran, Muslims believe, again, to be the word of God as revealed to the Prophet Muhammad. And again, Shia Muslims believe in the same identical definition uh, of the Quran. Um, and thereafter, in addition to, we have um, something known as the Hadith literature, um, the hadith literature are the words, sayings, sermons of the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, but Shia Muslims would extend that also to these personalities who, um, were, who, were, who, were, who were chosen, again, under the Shia understanding, to speak uh, on behalf of Islam after the Prophet Muhammad. Um, and that is the closest family members, individuals known as the um, Ahl al-Bayt, literally meaning the people of the home. Um, specific specific to individuals like that of Ali, Fatima, Hassan, and Hussein. Again, uh, mm. Fatima, the daughter of the Prophet, her husband Ali, their two children, Hassan and, and Hussein. And their words uh, and their advices are also defined as um, uh, as the hadith literature, meaning uh, sources of, 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 of knowledge, whereby we take their advices and their words and their instruction as a mechanism to get closer to God. Um, maybe I'll just sort of clarify one point over here, just in case there's uh, any confusion or, or sort of an oft, uh, you know, a question that's oft asked, uh, at least amongst many of my students who are non-Muslim. They say, why do you need the Hadith literature if you already have the Quran? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, because the Quran is the, is, the, is the word of God. The Quran, of course, is revealed in the sixth century um, in the Arabian Peninsula. And um, it's not particularly uh, such an easy, easy text, excuse me, to navigate, particularly as um, that community began to develop very, very rapidly and very quickly. 
uh, the hadith literature is meant to be a supplement toward the Muslim understanding of the Quran um, and an opportunity to clarify points within the Quran. Um, and while all Muslims believe the Quran, again, to be the word of God, uh, which is perfect, meaning Muslims believe that this is the word of God, unaltered, the hadith literature is up for debate because um, there are a wide variety of different, you know, uh, mm. you know, interpretations of the language, uh, as well as a whole host of fabrications that took place um, during the early uh, two or three centuries mm. uh, of Muslim history. Um, so it's important for um, anyone who is uh, diligent uh, to kind of verify the authenticity of this hadith literature. Um, yes. And again, so Shia Muslims would utilize the words and the advices um, and the instruction of the Prophet Muhammad, as well as his closest family members known as the Ahlul Bayt, to supplement our understanding of the Quran. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so moving, on, moving along, like I said before, the way that I like to understand um, the religion of Islam is within these three frames, you know, fundamentally the, um, you know, the theology of the tradition, um, ethics and spirituality, and then thereafter law. So really, really quickly. Um, again, if I kind of go back to this point, and I think that this often gets lost amongst many people of, 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 of religion more broadly, not only within sort of uh, the Muslim community, um, is like ultimately what is the purpose of our existence? You know, what, what is it that we're seeking? Why are these conversations important in the first place? Mm. Uh, like I said before, these conversations are important in the first place because at the end of the day, um, the idea is to become the best, perfect, most perfect version of who we have the capacity and potential to be. Um, and there is a famous, a sort of prophetic statement, uh, which is oft quoted amongst um, both um, Sunni and Shi'i Muslims alike, uh, which states, um, In other words, um, act in accordance with the etiquette of God. There's this notion that God, who is the all-merciful, the all-loving, the all-compassionate, the all-just, that we have a responsibility to illuminate um, to the best of our sort of humanly potential um, those characteristics and qualities within our, you know, within our framework. How can I be the most merciful human being to those around me, the most caring, the most just, the most equitable? Um, and one of the important um, frameworks that allow for us, at least within the Shia tradition to do so, is by utilization of various sources of prayer manuals, um, books whereby we have uh, been outlined, um, you know, particular acts of worship. Uh, the most famous of them from the first latter part of the first, early part of the second century uh, of Islam is a work known as Sahifa As-Sajadiyya which is a, um, a prayer manual, which is very, very sort of devotional in its nature, uh, a book of dua or supplication, which is narrated to us by the fourth Shia Imam, uh, the great grandson of the Prophet Muhammad, a man by the name of Ali bin Hussein, otherwise known as As-Sajjad. Um, and so, the, so this particular text is known um, as the prayer manual of As-Sajjad. Um, and it could say collection of various different supplications, um, which again are very very beautiful in terms of their you know um, you know their 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 sort of devotional method uh, or style, um, and it's meant to be an opportunity for believers to sort of you know take a look at some of these um, instructive prayer manuals and utilize those words to communicate um, in sort of their conversation with God. Um, and again, it is uh, something that I that I that I strongly sort of advise um, all individuals who are interested in kind of understanding Islamic spirituality. To undoubtedly take a look at it. It's also been translated 
um, into the um, into the English language by by one of my professors, actually uh, William Chittick. Ah, oh, William Chittick. Yes, he's a well-known uh, American scholar. Yes. 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 yes of course. Um, in addition to essay for the Sajadi, there are also various other uh, sources um, of of kind of ethics and spirituality within the Shia tradition of Islam. Um, and really, really quickly, if we kind of frame again theology, ethics, and spirituality, the last sort of you know major bucket um, in terms of understanding Islam and Muslims uh, or Shia Islam and 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 Shia Muslims is around law and jurisprudence. Hmm. Um, so you know one of the you know important points to keep in mind is how that you know how the notion of the understanding of Shia theology informs all of these other realities. Right. Mm-hmm. So we talk about kind of, you know, how it informs ethics and spirituality. because We take instruction from this, the, these, these specific personalities like that of the imamate that we spoke about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, those who have this um, divinely appointed um, or sort of divine gift uh, to speak on behalf of Islam, as Shia Muslims believe. Um, and so they inform how we, you know, apply our own practical spirituality, so to say. Um, similarly, within the sort of realm of, you know, law and jurisprudence, there is a role of the imam, right? So we talk about the Quran as the sixth century text and, you know, the hadith literature as the interpretation of the Quran or sort of a supplement to this primary work. Um, but the Quran is revealed, according to Muslims, over a period of 23 years, mm. um, the, you know, in the first obviously, century of Islam, to the Prophet Muhammad. Um, but as the Muslim sort of, you know, community begins to spread out, there are a lot of questions around, you know, issues of the permissibility of X or Y or Z, things that people haven't experienced at all, um, you know, in different parts of, you know, now the growing Muslim community. Um, and so the, you know, I, know I, guess, I guess a fundamental point to mention is that um, this notion or this period of imamate, at least within the Twelver school of theology, extends for approximately 250 years after the Prophet Muhammad. And the imam, the individual, again, who um, assumes this position of leadership, according to Shia Muslims, um, he is the one who offers instruction with regards to matters of law and jurisprudence on many of these newer issues. I will say this, that um, Shia Muslims believe that law in and of itself is like the law of God. And again, not the, not the um, sort of interpretation of like any one of these personalities, uh, be it the Prophet Muhammad or any of the Imams. Okay, can, I, can I just pause here? Because this is a source of some confusion. Thank you to people, certainly to me in the past. Um, is that the various meanings of this word imam, I-M-A-M in, in English? And it can mean the person who, it does mean, I should say, uh, amongst many other definitions, the person who leads the daily prayers in the mosque, the imam leads the prayers. And anyone in Sunni Islam can be an imam, any you know upstanding person can lead prayers. It can also be an honorific title given to esteemed scholars, uh, such as Imam al-Ghazali, al-Ghazali, the famous uh, Islamic scholar. He's sometimes called Imam al-Ghazali. The caliph uh, is sometimes called the uh, Imam as well in Sunni Islam. It's not that common, but he certainly can be called uh, an Imam as well. And then there's the specific Shiite usage of the term. And this is quite distinctive. The Imam concept in Shiite theology is, is distinctive uh, from the any of the aforementioned 
usages in Sunni Islam. And this is so the same word can be used in different roles in different contexts. And that can be a bit confusing. But what you've been talking about, I think, is the specifically Shia understanding of Imam. Um, it doesn't negate the other understandings, but it's right. certainly distinctive and exclusive to, to the Shia understanding, I think. Yeah, absolutely. You know, thank you. Thank you so much for clarifying. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I when I speak or when I apply the word imam, it's specific to sort of this theological uh, understanding within the Shi'i framework of, right. of what it means. And what exactly, again, does it mean? Um, the imam is an individual who um, possesses a religious authority. And again, if we want to summarize, virtually speaks on behalf of Islam after the Prophet Muhammad or speaks on behalf of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, and Shia Muslims believe that this personality has been um, appointed uh, by God uh, in order to um, conserve the prophetic message, uh, if that makes right. sense. Right. And, and the, the, the dominant Shia uh, group, if I can use that, but that are, are, are the 12, uh, the 12ers, uh, people who believe in the, the, the 12 imams, um, the 12ers, uh, you're obviously you're, you're part of that, and they're believed to be uh, the 12 infallible uh, I imams. Uh, but there, there are other groups, of course, as well. They're the Ishmaelis, the, the Zaydis, the, the Druze, and so on. Uh, and I, I, I know you're not here perhaps to talk about all of those, but nevertheless, they do exist. So, so but you, you belong to the, the majoritarian group, obviously. Um, uh, we, could you say just a few words about these other groups, uh, perhaps in or order of popularity or significance, if that's possible? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, regarding regarding other groups like that of the Ismailis or Zaydis, and again, I don't claim to be an expert on 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 their on their respective traditions. Um, the fundamentals, um, at least with regards to um, the you know the, this notion and this position of a leadership um, after the Prophet Muhammad. In other words, that Ali the cousin and son-in-law of the Prophet being the most excellent and the most um, sort of outstanding uh, from the other companions of the Prophet Muhammad is prevalent um, and, and I guess a dominant theme within their respective traditions as well. Right. Um, and each and every one of these schools also have a very distinct law and jurisprudence as well as a very distinct uh, sort of methodology in terms of their interpretation of, of, of theology. Some of the sources are comparable, like the work of Sahifa As-Sajadiyya that I mentioned earlier, uh, this famous prayer manual, which is central toward, um, you know, undoubtedly toward the Twelver tradition as well as toward the Ismaili, uh, sorry, the, the, the Zaydi tradition. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so that's something to keep in mind. And, you know, if I were to take one step back, I would say that one common um, similarity amongst the various different, um, you know, Shia uh, schools and denominations um, is that there is this central uh, sort of, uh, I guess, how would we say it? A central reverence that is given toward particular members of the prophetic family, mm -hmm. uh, namely Ali and Fatima and Hassan and Hussein, um, in addition to the prophet, these five personalities um, who are also known within the Sunni traditions, Ahlul Kisa, hold a um, sort of very significant um, and, you know, and maybe even sort of an eschatological role uh, mm. within 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 the various schools of, of Shia Islam more broadly. Mm. Okay. Um, I just wanted uh, one, of, one of the things that, sorry, before you go on, one of the things that uh, fascinated uh, me, um, I'll just put us back on the uh, main screen uh, for a second. 
um, is to discover um, a, a while ago uh, the, the fascinating uh, connections between um, uh, the eponymous founder of the Hanafi school known as Abu Hanifa or Imam uh, Abu Hanifa and the sixth Imam of Shiism and the founder of uh, 12 Imam Shia law. And I just wanted to read just a couple of sentences from uh, one of the first books on Islam I ever read, The Heart of Islam by Syed Hossein Nasser, who I think is Iranian originally, but living in the United States now. Mm -hmm. is a very, uh, very prominent scholar, uh, theologian and philosopher. I think he's even got been a physicist at MIT in the past. He's uh, incredibly talented. Anyway, he says on page, page 68, um, he's talked about the, the four schools uh, in Sunni Islam, the Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi, and the Hanbali schools. These are legal schools in Sunni Islam. And the Hanafi school, which is the most widely followed today, he says, was founded by a Persian, Abu Hanifa. He died in 768, uh, who was a student of Imam Jaffa al-Sadiq. He died in 757, the sixth Imam of Shiism and founder of 12 Imam Shiite law, which is called Jafari law. And uh, I just find that fascinating that the eponymous founder of the Hanafi school uh, was actually taught by one of the 12 Shia imams, if you like, and 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 that uh, that suggests a closeness of authority and teaching, which right at the source, right at the origins of Islam, where it was much more interconnected, uh, and um, than the separation that tragically happened uh, later on. That I just found that uh, an interesting. I'm not quite sure the significance of that, but I think it's worth reflecting on and pondering on uh, that there was this close personal relationship between, um, you know, Abu Hanifa and, and and this imam. So do you have any thoughts about that or the significance no. of that? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that that last point that you had mentioned to me um, is, is super important, uh, just regards to the relationship of these early communities mm. um, and how though they had, you know, many core differences, both theologically and jurisprudentially, um, sort of their coexistence um, was a reality um, and that their their sort of differences um, were kind of spoken about within an academic arena. I think an ex excellent work that just came out, I'm actually reading it right now, I've not, I've not concluded it yet, um, is, a, is a new book by uh, Dr. Hussein Madarusis, a professor at Princeton University. Uh, it's called Text and Interpretation, and it's around sort of the, um, the legal methodology of uh, Ja'far al-Sadr, the sixth imam the teacher of Abu Hanifa as well. And so right. he speaks to this particular point uh, as well, just in, in, in terms of us understanding kind of what these early Muslim communities believed and how they and how they began to develop within, that, within the second century of Islam. Mm -hmm. That's Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. Sorry, uh, back to the... Uh, no, sorry. no, it's, 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 uh, that's totally fine. Um, and maybe just, you know, just to conclude, mm. um, one, one particularly important uh, point, or maybe my last important point, um, is regards to the, the sources of Islamic law. So where the hadith literature within the, um, you know, amongst, amongst Sunni Muslims comprises of maybe, you know, six core works, the Siha Asitta, for instance, um, the sources of Islamic law within the Shia tradition are, are, are four major books. Um, and you can take a look at these, uh, you know, the dates to, 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 to offer mm -hmm. some idea, um, but these Primary works are, again, compilations or collections of the hadith literature of the Prophet Muhammad, as well as the imams, at least within 12 or Shiaism. Um, uh, and these particular works are known as Kitab al-Kafi, Min la yahdurhu al-Faqi of al-Saduq, and Tahdib al-Istibsar of Sheikh al-Tusi. Um, and these make up, again, the sort of foundation 
of Muslim law uh, for Shia Muslims, where we kind of derive our our um, uh, legal sort of edicts from. So I, I note that the the two uh, in Sunni Islam, the two canonical collections of uh, Bukhari and uh, Muslim are, are not present there. And I've already yes. mentioned the four legal uh, schools uh, as well in the Sunni tradition, starting with Abu Hanifa. Again, that they're not part of that uh, source of Islamic law. So already we're seeing uh, a, um, a, a different characterization of jurisprudence in Islam. There, yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, and and to that one point that you had mentioned with regards to the relationship between um, Ja'far al-Sadiq and, and, uh, and Abu Hanifa, mm. uh, the author, Sayyid Hussein Nasr, he mentions that, you know, Ja'far al-Sadiq being the founder of, of kind of the Shia legal school, mm. um, that was primarily because of the climate of the time. And so, of course, in this particular list, you don't see the works like that of Bukhari and Muslim, which were written, you know, some, uh, you know, some years earlier. Um, the idea is that that's when a lot of these schools of law and jurisprudence and theology became more distinct. Um, and so it's really, really important to understand, you know, for someone who's particularly interested in the subject around, you know, how to navigate the development of these two communities to really study that which took place prior to, mm. uh, you know, in the early period of Islam within that first century that mm. leads up to kind of this development and then the segmentation of these various uh, schools, mm. uh, both, you know, of, of theology, of, of ethics and spirituality or of, or of law. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, maybe we you know we maybe we can leave it over here, and you know we can engage in some conversation, perhaps. Yes, oh, well, thank you very much indeed for that uh, fascinating introduction. I just wanted to um, just to bring up some inevitable points of, of difference because although um, there's a lot in common, you mentioned obviously have the same Quran, or all Muslims have the same Quran. That there are there are real differences, and sometimes these differences, very regrettably, uh, in the modern world, can lead to conflict and even fighting, uh, and even killing sometimes, and obviously. Uh, that's not how uh, we we should let the differences between Sunni and Shia uh, uh, be, be engaged. We should we should uh, be, be looked to serious engagement through dialogue, through conversation, um, through discourse, rather than uh, violence, of course. Um, but the, the, inevitably, that there are questions that that uh, many Sunni uh, Sunni Muslims will rise, uh, rise, uh, raise with their. Um, their, their Shia friends, for example, is it permissible uh, to to curse uh, the Sahaba? I mean, is it a tenet of faith to have to curse the Sahaba? Because obviously, in Sunni Islam, that's not permissible. Uh, Sunnis hold the companions in very high regard, uh, and so that we we are often quite um, perplexed when we hear of or, or even see uh, some Shias do this. So, what is the your understanding of the Shia position about the cursing of Sahaba? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a very, very sort of frequently asked question, common question amongst many. You know, undoubtedly that this particular, you know, practice is, you know, definitely not a tenant of faith. Um, undoubtedly, there are differences of opinion with regards to certain, you know, individuals. Um, and, you know, just to, you know, elucidate the point, um, because Shia Muslims believe in the religious authority of Ali um, after the Prophet Muhammad, um, there is a belief um, among Shia Muslims, that the early Muslim community did believe, um, or sorry, uh, were aware that the Prophet Muhammad chose to uh, appoint Ali as his, you know, as, as as a successor, so to say, or the individual who has religious authority. And anyone who heard that, um, but you know, full didn't fulfill sort of their their responsibility to, um, I guess, aligning with Ali or supporting Ali or, you know, following his instruction that they committed 
um, an act of disbelief. They made a mistake. They committed a sin or whatever it might be. Um, that being said, you know, one of uh, a, a really popular Shia scholar, um, Haider Haballah, currently based in Iran, uh, if I'm not mistaken, of Lebanese descent, uh, he writes in, the, in his famous work, and I, and I, and I, and I, and I certainly take this as, as really sort of core and valuable, um, he states that anyone who uh, opposed Ali in that early period, they committed an act of ijtihad, meaning that they sought and they, you know, if we, if we want to give the benefit of doubt, um, we believe that they were wrong, but, but they thought at that moment that they were making the best decision um, mm. for the Muslim community. Um, and, you know, undoubtedly, Shia Muslims believe that they made a mistake in that regard. Mm. Um, do I believe in cursing or speaking poorly about individuals uh, within early Islamic history? Absolutely not. Do Shia Muslims practice uh, cursing or speaking poorly about, about, about companions who disagreed with the stance uh, or with the position of Ali and the, and the, and the um, sort of early, uh, excuse me, do Shia Muslims curse and speak poorly about uh, these individuals um, who opposed Ali uh, Absolutely. That is a reality. And it's a really, really unfortunate reality. And I think a lot of it kind of develops uh, polemically much later on. And it becomes a really central practice of um, many Shia Muslims, you know, during the time of the Safavids, for instance, along, you know, with their warring with the Ottomans. And I think it's really, really important, again, to understand these various climates. I think that point that you mentioned, the the relationship between Ja'far al-Sadiq and Abu Hanifa, mm. um, you know, much earlier um, demonstrates again that there was um, some conversation, though real differences within the communities. Yeah. I certainly don't believe in in, in speaking poorly. So the, the, the cursing thing uh, it, it is not something, obviously, you, you approve of at all. And it's not a to be clear. There, it's not a tenet of faith to have to cu- to curse the Sahaba. Absolutely this, not. Absolutely. Uh, that, that's uh, okay. Uh, well, that, that that's uh, that's good to hear. And another question that some some people sometimes have: Do Dushiers consider Sunnis to be Muslims? I, I think I know what you're going to say, given your ironic remarks so far. But that Sunnis don't believe in the twelve infallible imams, and that's it's such a central tenet of Aqidah in Shia understanding of Islam. Then to deny that. Uh, at least on some readings, you would think, well, maybe the Shias don't think that Sunnis are Muslims at all because they deny a central plank of the Shia Akida. Would that be an inexorable conclusion or is it not quite as simple as that? No, it's definitely not as quite as simple as that. You know, I think that um, undoubtedly, again, the notion of imamate, again, within this 12-er Shia definition, is super central to our understanding of, of religion and informs every other aspect and reality of the faith. Um, but that being said, um, the sort of prerequisite to being considered Muslim uh, amongst um, the majority of Shia Muslims is belief in um, one God and belief in the finality of the prophetic message of the Prophet Muhammad. Many other Shia scholars would add one point to that, which would be a belief in the world beyond this one like, that I had touched base upon earlier. Um, but someone who believes in these two testimonies, as Muslims often state, the Shahadatain, uh, yeah. belief in God. Uh, and belief in the prophethood of the Prophet Muhammad, um, that suffices as being Muslim, uh, and we leave judgment beyond that, you know, to God. Um, and at the end of the day, like I like I often tell uh, young folks in my community, I'm working on my own salvation, let alone <laughs> let alone thinking about you know other people. So uh, you know. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, you, you are never. You're not just a private individual. You're you're a leader, uh, a, a faith leader involved in uh, dialogues and so on. 
uh, it, it, throughout North America. So you, your your view uh, is a public interest. Uh, so, but no. Uh, so yeah. So you're saying basically, obviously, they are Muslims, uh, and you'll leave the judgment to God uh, in the hereafter as to what what's what uh, amongst that. And that's very interesting. I mean, in terms of your relations with Sunni Muslims, would there be perhaps a, a, a key message or a key point that you might want to convey to Sunni Muslims uh, about your understanding of Islam that perhaps is not well understood or needs to be looked at uh, more carefully? Would you have a, a message, if you like, for Sunni Muslims? Yeah, you know, that's a great that's a great question. Um, I do a lot of work with um, the Sunni Muslim community here in, in New York City, um, as well as, you know, across the United States. Um, and I recognize that the rest of the world is very, very different um, in terms of the engagement of polemics, uh, particularly in the UK and, you know, and perhaps beyond, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps beyond Europe and, and, and otherwise. That being said, I would say that, you know, what I what I would, you know, undoubtedly like to express is at the end of the day, I think that we are all seeking the same goal. And the ultimate objective, which is, um, you know, to gain closeness and proximity toward this God. A Muslim is meant toward being in a state of submission and to being the best of those who submit to God. Um, you know, exerting ourselves through focus and diligence via prayers, via perseverance, via sort of a refinement of our, you know, souls and our hearts and our sort of spiritual dimension, uh, perhaps. Um, and I think that's really, really important at the end of the day, our approach and our methodologies may be very, very different, but I think that we're only able to understand those differences actually with regards to methodology if we spend the time to get to know them. You know, um, there is a famous, you know, Quranic statement uh, in which the Prophet uh, Muhammad is told by God in chapter three, um, say, O Prophet Muhammad, ta'alu ila kalimatin sawa, let us come to a common understanding. Uh, but God is speaking or commanding the Prophet Muhammad to tell the early Christian and Jewish communities um, uh, of Medina during that day, let us come to a, toward a common word. Let us come toward a common understanding. Let's focus on commonalities, recognizing that there are differences. How can we utilize um, our commonalities toward you know, building the institutions that we need to? In other words, I recognize that theologically we have very, very stark differences, as well as legally and jurisprudentially, as well as sort of our understanding of ethics and spirituality. Mm. We have not been able to solve, right, you know, this sort of conversation for 1400 plus years amongst Muslims. Mm. Um, but there's still a lot of work that needs to get done if we need, if we are to be those ambassadors of, you know, of, of value and of virtue, of mercy and of compassion and of justice. Then we need to support, you know, the survivors of domestic violence. We need to support, um, you know, our communities that are being plagued by homelessness and poverty. Um, we need to support individuals, um, you know, who are struggling financially or ethically or whatever it might be. We as Muslims can work together, utilizing those common core values that we have toward doing that, but also at the same time being distinct within our own communities about what it is that we believe. And I really, really believe that, um, you know, that 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 potential that that potential remains, at least in terms of our offering towards social services, yeah. and utilizing our spiritual traditions. And, and that, that's a very, very a noble uh, vision uh, and those those values you refer to. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, we're not going to go into it here. We, we'd be talking about it for hours if we did. We, we, we have the geopolitical situation. We have and we're not going to go into it. We've got Iran. We've got Saudi Arabia. We have proxy wars yeah. uh, and, and, you know, in, involving millions of Muslims around the world. And, and these, of course, help to uh, well, not help that these are 
flashpoints, points of conflict and tension uh, and killing even sometimes. And, and this inevitably, we're, we're aware of this. So although in, in New York or America, you mentioned you know, homelessness and so on, very, very important, but there is this geopolitical global angle to it which inevitably feeds into our consciousnesses and we can't avoid that yeah um, and so that's always going to affect us I, I think yeah it's 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 very very unfortunate um it's very unfortunate but i think individuals like us you know who have a sense of privilege who are not necessarily bound by um you know warring parties uh where we have access to you know clean internet for the most part and you know the ability uh, to converse you know um adequately and have access to, to literature and books and so on and so forth, um, we have the capacity to do what we have to do, you know, at the end of the day. Um, and of course, you know, just, you know, for, for folks who may not be so familiar then with, with kind of, you know, Islam and Shia Sunni tensions, so to say, um, it's really, really important to keep in mind those geopolitical realities as being geopolitical that oftentimes get conflated with Shia and Sunni between Saudi Arabia and Iran, when in reality, you know, they are, you know, that's a that's that, that's a whole that, that's a whole another conversation. The only mm. thing is that there's an application of you know religious terminology that feeds a media narrative um, right. you know, that, right. that's right. crafted very sort of attractively towards someone who you know who is who is looking for you know the othering you know at war. Um, you know, yes. very oriental or, or, or orientalist perspective. We mustn't forget, of course, the uh, the Western tendency to invade a lot of these countries on a regular basis on right. the pretense of liberating them from right. <laughs> from themselves or something. Um, uh, we're not, that's another huge yeah. can of worms we're not going to go into. But your country, the United States, and my country, United Kingdom, are, are rather keen on invading Muslim countries, and it doesn't help. I'm no. being passively understating, of course, but uh, another can of worms are not going to go. Um, just, just very finally, um, are, are there any resources online, perhaps, that what, what one might uh, refer to to uh, explore some of these issues further from a Shia perspective? Um, you know, there are, there are a lot of works. I would, I would definitely recommend that if someone is, you know, particularly interested with matters of ethics and spirituality, to take a look at um, that prayer manual that I mentioned earlier, Sahifa As-Sajadiyah. Um, which is, uh, again, translated into the English language as the Psalms of Islam, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, interesting. The Psalms, I like that. So the biblical reference there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you can, you can find that online, um, perhaps on Amazon yeah. or, or, you know, other resources. Um, and it, you, can, you can also find an abundance of sort of, you know, literature around, um, I would definitely recommend if you're interested in kind of the, the, the legal and jurisprudential sort of mm. uh, perspective, to, to take a look at this new work, Dr. Hussein Madarsi's text, it's called Text and Interpretation. What was, um, the, what was the professor's name again? You said uh, it rather quickly. Yes, Dr. Hussein Mudarasi. Do, how's that spelled? D-A... Um, M-O-D-A-R-E-S-S-I, I think. Oh, yeah. right. Okay. All right. Yeah, Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Just gave, we tap that name in. All right. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, no worries. No worries. And then, um, you know, the, the, the author that you had mentioned earlier, Sayyid Hussein Nasr, yeah, um, actually, it's, it's a very basic introduction, but the reason I like it um, is actually beautifully written, and mm -hmm. it's quite—it's very irenic. Um, I think him, he is a kind of a very gentle Shia um, academic himself, but we don't really get the sense of confessional competition or, or uh, disagreement. Uh, he tends to be quite all-encompassing, um, but he—he's he, a philosopher and a theologian. He—he he has many interesting insights in the nature of divine law and secularism and modernity as well. Uh, right. which are actually very insightful, I think, for everyone, regardless of our own particular views. Absolutely, absolutely. And you can find an abundance of his of his works oh, he's, he's um, online, as well as his, uh, you know, many, many academic journals as well. 
where he's where he's often you know offered some sort of understanding around Shia mm. theology as well. Mm. So that's something that that, that 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 folks should definitely take a look at, check out. Perfect. Well, um, that, perhaps we will uh, leave it there. But uh, uh, Dr. Fayez Jaffa, thank you so much for your time. I know you're a busy man teaching at New York University, so very grateful indeed that you uh, spent your time to talk to us. And uh, I think it's, it's beneficial that we we try and understand each other's positions from those positions rather than coming from a position where we impose our interpretation to listen to uh, people we don't necessarily see the world exactly the same way and trying to understand even when we don't agree that is a beneficial exercise i think but that can only bring hopefully understanding and tolerance in the best sense of the word tolerance i don't mean grudging you know tolerance uh in terms of coexistence peaceful coexistence with people with whom we don't uh necessarily agree and that can something we need more of obviously in our world today so thank you very much for your time sir thank you so much for having me appreciate it well, um, there's just a, a last couple of uh, allegations, really, uh, that are made. They're both similar. They're to do with Takia, actually. And uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Well, one, um, I'll give you a couple of quotes um, uh, to do with Takia. Uh, one is from uh, Al Khomeini, um, and he says in uh, a work entitled Arasil 2 201, where he says, Takiyah is wajib, that's an Arabic word meaning obligatory, is wajib with those who differ with us, al-Sunnah, that's Sunnis. Even if there is no fear on oneself or on someone else's. So that's one quote by Khomeini. Another one by uh, a writer called, a scholar called al-Shirazi. And he says in his work, the purpose of Takiyah is not limited, <clears throat> excuse me, to preserve oneself, or and to repel harm and danger from the self and the family and the wealth. It can also be to preserve the unity of the Muslims in situations where there is no need to reveal the true beliefs or defend them. It can be for other purposes as well. This is Takiyah, for other purposes as well, like spreading the message in a better way. So that's the first couple of quotations to do directly with the allegation of uh, and then I'm going to come to just uh, the other uh, similar allegation where there are numerous textual quotes I, I, I've seen that seem to indicate uh, that Shias hide the fact, conceal the fact that they curse the Sahaba, particularly focusing on Abu Bakr, Umar and Uthman, the early, um, uh, early uh, leaders, the, the caliphs of, of the Muslim world. So but the first one, could you just address these Khomeini quotes and, Sh and Shirazi quotes um, about Takiyah? Uh, well, what's going on there, and, and why is it so important that we, that Shias should conceal their faith, even when then their lives are not in danger? It seems. Thank you, thank you for for uh, for your follow up and uh, and for reaching out with these inquiries and questions. You know, I think that you know fundamentally, it's important for us to first of all start off with an understanding of like what the term in and of itself means. But even if I kind of zoom out just for one moment to reiterate yep. a point that I had mentioned earlier. And that is that um, the Shia narrative, Shia theological belief, jurisprudence, um, ethics and spirituality, and those topics that we covered is, again, always consistently in contrast to the normative. So there is a dominative or a sort of a dominant perspective or worldview of what Islam is like. And then anything that doesn't conform with that particular narrative is always seen as an outlier. So any engagement around, you know, Shia tradition in any of its aspects always gets seen sort of on the periphery 
And thus a conversation mm -hmm. like this one always has to be understood and then interpreted via kind of the framework that we're living in. So, you know, at the end of the day, a term like taqiyah is going to become so popularized um, within many of those who are very antagonistic towards Shia Muslims without like a fair and due understanding of what exactly that it means. And at the same time, kind of the, the, the context in which it was employed and it continues to be employed. Right. And I will say this, that we're talking about a history of um, marginalization of minority Muslim communities from the third and fourth century of Islam till this very day, mm -hmm. where there had to be a preservation of um, religious value and belief and theology amongst the Shia Muslim community. We're talking about genocides. We're talking about sectarian violence at its peak. And of course, I believe, like I mentioned earlier, that undoubtedly we have the capacity, individuals like you and I and many of our viewers as well who live um, in the United States, in the UK, wherever it might be, and curb that rhetoric toward like real growth and knowledge and understanding, you know? So immediately someone's going to jump toward the term taqiyah, and I realize I haven't defined it or responded to that yet, but I think it's important for me to start off with this introduction in order to get folks to understand, right, that I'm always being asked to bracket my beliefs and many other Shias as well, and always explain what I believe in the context of normative Sunni Islam. And that's right. very, very difficult. Right? It's not difficult for me to explain it. It's like overwhelmingly emotionally difficult because at the end of the day, like to recreate real growth, we need to understand each other like through, um, through text undoubtedly, but we also have to understand one another like and take and have good opinions about, uh, uh, you know, about one another in order to allow for that communal growth that, you know, that we're hoping for. So whatever I say, for instance, someone's going to say, but he's just performing taqiyah, right? Yes. And if yeah. you do then, if you don't, so to say, right? It's, it's a lose-lose situation. There's the lose -lose situation. no goodwill on assumption that the other is completely lying. It doesn't matter what the other person says because it's always going to be a lie. And so right. you can't win. And that seems right. to be a, a very difficult situation to be in, of course. Yeah, it's very unfortunate, right? It's very unfortunate. And it's, you know... And, and at the end of the day, who am I lying to? Am I, am I lying to myself, right? Am I lying to my, to, my, to my wife and my children and my community? Like, at the end of the day, like, what, what benefit is that going to do for me, right? Anyway, what exactly is taqiyah? Taqiyah comes from the uh, Arabic root word waqa, which literally means to shield oneself or to protect oneself. And this particular practice of concealing faith, as it's often sort of translated, but in reality, perhaps a more accurate translation is rather being strategic with the way that we speak, right? Let me give you an example. Yeah. If, if, if my employer asks me at the end of the year, and as we're approaching the end of the year here, um, and the end of the academic term here at the university, for instance, someone might ask, you know, my, my, my employer might ask me, you know, how do you like your job, right? And I could respond to them by telling them, or how would I, you know, I, I could tell them, you know, I feel overwhelmed, I'm burnt out, I hate my job, I hate coming to work every day, but at the end of the day, only thing I care about is making my paycheck, right? There, I probably wouldn't have a job when the new year begins, right? But if I respond and say, you know, there's some challenges, some good things, some bad things, there's a certain way that I'm going to speak to people, you know, um, based on a circumstance, right? And this is not only something that is like religious, you know, um, you know that, that has fundamentals within sort of religious text, but at the end of the day, it's like a normal human, you know, rational response, we actually have two, excuse me, we have two Quranic sort of principles or two Quranic sort of evidences that speak to this. One of them is chapter 40, verse 28, in which um, God states, That there was an individual who lived 
um, in the court of the Pharaoh, and he sought to protect Moses, uh, uh, peace and blessings be upon him, um, realizing that he, he was concealing his own fate and responded to, responded to the Pharaoh, why do you want to kill this man, right? Only thing he is doing is preaching equity, preaching mercy, preaching justice, right? Let him be. But in reality, what he was doing, and God says, not me, that he was concealing his, that he was concealing his own religious faith and identity, right? Why? For the preservation of value, for the preservation of virtue, and for the preservation of another man's life, you know, at the end of the day, right? And that, and that, and that, and that if anything, is, 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 you know, is dignified and praised. You know, a second, a second evidence of this is found within chapter 16, uh, verse 106 of the Quran, where there were certain Muslims in the early period of Islam, amongst them Amara bin Yasser, who protected himself when members of the polytheistic community came to kill him and many others. He said that I don't believe in God, you know, yeah. or he concealed his faith at that moment, but he believed in his heart, but he just concealed it on his tongue, again, yeah. for the preservation of his own life. So this is one sort of point to keep in mind, right? That we're talking about a practice that has been prevalent uh, or that has been sanctified within the Quran. And again, I am not saying this to state or to respond and say that, no, you know, at the end of the day, in our previous conversation, I did mention that Shia Muslims um, have a different historical view and narrative of personalities like that of Abu Bakr, Amar, and Uthman. If I had said that, no, they are dignified and they are loved and they are adored and they are venerated in the same manner as Sunni Muslims, I would be lying, right? But if I was performing taqiyah, I would have, in, in, in the way that many people perceive, I would have been sitting over here and singing their praises. But that's not the case. I said very, very honestly <laughs> and openly that at the end of the day, there is a difference in historical narrative and opinion about our understanding of them and their actions. And that is a common and normative Shi'i opinion. That being said, I don't speak on behalf of every Shia Muslim, keeping in mind that, we're, that, it's, that it's not a homogenous group. We're talking about people. If I may, that's, that's a key point, actually, um, uh, and not an homogenous group. Is it the case, and you, you can inform me, that there is a spectrum of beliefs? Uh, you, you get that in, in most religions. So in Judaism, you'll get sort of, or, uh, you know, ultra-Orthodox, Orthodox, you get reformists and so on and so on. Is there a spectrum of beliefs? So you might get hardliners or traditionalists who adhere to the classical texts who will um, curse the, the Sahaba uh, uh, and, and, uh, you know, and, and do other things which sometimes find extremely offensive. There might, you might get more moderate people like yourself, perhaps, who um, are, are much more aware of the sensitivities involved and want to do... Uh, engage in dialogue and bridge building and, and, and rapprochement to some extent whilst seeing there are differences nevertheless you don't want to engage in those practices of all we're, which alienate I mean are we looking at different emphases within this broad term Shia understanding of Islam I, I, absolutely but I would just want to I, I just want to respond to one point that you mentioned yeah. just to clarify for our viewers that when we're talking about the classical text right mm. I would argue that the majority of this rhetoric and language was, uh, you know, took place, poor language about the Sahaba, for instance, yeah. um, and manifested itself um, during highly politicized sort of, you know, uh, periods within Islamic history. Right. I have in front of me, for instance, a text uh, of one of um, our early Shi'i theologians, a man by the name of Ibn Qubbat al-Razi, where he is from the fourth century, so from the very, very early period. Yeah. And he states, for instance, 
that the actions of Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman in their um, assuming position of leadership was not out of an act of maliciousness, but rather it was something that they felt was the right route that they needed to take at that given moment. We're talking about fourth century of Islam. So, you know, close to, you know, 800, 900, you know, uh, years. Um, similarly, I have in front of me another text, uh, which I certainly take a lot of inspiration from. Um, a man by the name of Haider Hubbullah, who writes the text, Rasadat Salam, al- Salam Madhabi, in which he, which he writes an open letter um, <clears throat> to both Shia and Sunni um, members of the community um, speaking to a lot of the sort of misinformation that's been spewed on both sides and calling toward, you know, focusing on common values, but at the same time, understanding one another. And again, building bridges, but at the same time, having our own beliefs and having our own convictions. In his text, he also mentions the same, that they performed an act of ijtihad. There is absolutely a wide spectrum of thoughts and of opinions around the personalities of Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman. And in addition to that, there is undoubtedly people who curse in really poor language and speak very awfully about them. I do not con- condone that at all. I'm openly condemning that in front of all the viewers. So just, just to repeat, uh, sorry to be, don't mean to be dramatic, but you've no, just said that you, you, op- you openly condemn those actions. That's what you just Absolutely, said. Absolutely, 100%. And again, I'm <laughs> saying this publicly, there are people in my own community who are going to be upset. I, 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 and and, and to, be, you know, to be quite honest, it doesn't concern me because at the end of the day, like I said before, my ultimate responsibility is to see closest to God and understand like the religion of you know, God and of his prophet and of the whole Quran and mm-hmm. take my ethical and spiritual ethos from that. Look, there's this wide range of opinions and people are going to unfortunately do what they're going to do. Look, historically, we're talking about in, you know, there was an Umayyad practice of cursing Ali, for instance, you know, in the in the in the in the second century of Islam that, that took place for decades. You know, there was a, a, a whole host of and not only Ali, but many of those who followed Ali and the early Shia community as well. In other words, I'm trying to say is that there were these whole, a whole host of hostilities and sort of a political climate. That, that, that created a lot of this language, unfortunately, on, you know, on both sides and this extremism and so on and so forth. But again, if, if I was doing taqiyya, right, <clears throat> I wouldn't come and present to you evidences from early historical narrative, nor from contemporary historical narrative, um, or sorry, from, you know, from contemporary scholars. Um, and at the same time, I would just, you know, paint this incredibly romanticized picture of, of, uh, of, uh, uh, you know, of the Sahaba or of what Taqiyya means, right? But no, I mean, I think it's important to understand the context and also understand, again, that, um, you know, this is, like, this is genuinely what, what certainly I believe, um, and I'm certain that many, many other Shia believe the same. Right. I mean, my, my last question to, to you, and I think, thank you for that um, explanation. It's fascinating to hear the diversity of opinions and positions on this, and you condemn the more extreme uh, versions uh, where people do curse the the beloved figures of Sunni Islam, uh, Abu Bakr, Umar, and Uthman, and others. Um, did you have a final message to those Sunni Muslims who uh, are just not going to buy what you say? I mean, this may be an impossible thing for you to do. How do you overcome someone who just doesn't want to hear? But do you have a message for people who th- that might uh, persuade them or, or lead them to 
think in terms of dialogue and trying to understand the other, the other person being your position, without foreclosing and shutting shutting it down just because they don't want to hear. Is there yeah. a way? That you, is there a way that you can build bridges to uh, uh, what you're saying is as much more positive than the more uh, negative voices that you yourself have disassociated yourselves from? Is, is there a way to build bridges? Do you think, with Sunnis? Absolutely. You know, absolutely. And I, and I, you know, personally and sincerely with all of my heart, you know, whether someone believes me, thinks I'm doing Zapiya now too, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, with all, with all sincerity, you know, I don't think I would ever close the door if there's an opportunity for communal growth at the end of the day. So I would say two points. Number one is that you have to understand that there are a whole host of misconceptions and just outright lies about what Shia Muslims believe, Right. right. I know that as sort of an um, you know onslaught of you know uh, you know the initial initial release that we were having this conversation um, and sort of all of the all of the pushback um, you know that you know that was that was evident on social media you know, people people were reaching out to me and saying you know you lie you know like do you really believe like that um, we believe do you really believe that we believe you that we you guys have the same Quran. I was like, well, you know, walk it, walk into my home or walk into like any Shia mosque. We have the same Quran, you know. Or, or for instance, someone says that you know Shia Muslims believe that um, you know the angel Gabriel made a mistake in Revelation. He meant to give it to Ali and not to the Prophet. These are all fallacies, right? And and they're and they're absurd and they're ridiculous and laughable almost, you know. Right. So I would say that you know to you know to to to, to, to sort of speak to those to those folks. I realize. That, you know, I'm not in the business of pleasing anyone. And no matter what I say, you know, there are going to be people who are not pleased with it. And I have to accept that reality, right? Um, and again, like I mentioned earlier, damned if you do, damned if you don't sort of yeah. reality that, that I, you know, that I and, and, and many others in my position uh, live in. But that being said, I will say this, that at the end of the day, we do have like very real differences, but at the same time, we have very real similarities. That is our belief and our conviction in God and our absolute love and adoration for the greatest of God's creation as the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him and his family. And if we can work to unite on this front, at the very least, there's potential for communal growth. There's potential to build a better world, right? And there's potential for us to walk in the footsteps in terms of sort of the etic, uh, you know, ethical framework of the messenger of God, he states in the famous hadith um, that is, you know, undoubtedly mentioned in Shi'i texts, and if I'm not mistaken, in Sunni texts as well, which is, I was sent with one responsibility, and that was to perfect the qualities of my community. You know, Paul, we were mentioning this really quick anecdote just a little while earlier before we hit the record button. You know, I, um, you know, I live in, I live in New York, and you know, over the last couple of years in, in, in this very, you know, highly politicized sort of period and sort of the post-Trump presidency and whatnot, um, you know, you could, you know, you, you could feel kind of this negative energy, you know, amongst people of very different sort of political, you know, realities. And I remember walking into a, um, an Uber one day on my way to, to work and um, the taxi driver, he asked me, he said, you must be Muslim based on my name or based, you know, on his you know, perception of what Muslims look like when he saw me or whatever it might be. Uh, and I said, yes. Um, and he just started like going off and telling me like how terrible Islam is and so on and so forth. Um, and I asked him like, why, like what's going on? And he said, you know, you're, you're the reason why our country's in the state that it is. And, you know, I can't imagine that, you know, 
you know, you, you, you didn't vote, you know, I, I, I can't imagine you voted for Donald Trump. I said, no, like I didn't. And he just was really, really rude and, you know, very sort of poor with his language. And like, I, you know, I, I was really frightened at the moment, but, you know, after he calmed down for a moment, I told him, I said, hey, my friend, I said, do you have children? And he said, yes, I do. Um, and I said, hey, I have, I have kids too. Um, my daughters are seven and five. How old are your kids? And he gave me the age of his children. I said, do you love your kids? He's like, why are you asking me this? I told him, look, at the end of the day, like we both have children. The reason why I didn't vote for Donald Trump is because my kids go to school and they get bullied for being Muslim, for having a Muslim name and so on and so forth. And so that's the reason I need you to understand that and realize that. And he responded and said that, hey, but I, the reason why I vote for Donald Trump is because, you know, uh, is because I think that's better for my kids. I said, okay, well, you know, we have a difference of opinion. At the end of the day, like we engaged in a brief conversation, he calmed down and he actually realized and began to hear my perspective a little bit. I don't say this again to romanticize like the realities and theological differences between Shi'i and Sunni Muslims that has like, you know, been prevalent and present for the last 1200 plus years. That's a reality and we can engage in conversation around that theologically and whatnot. But fundamentally, we have the potential and the opportunity to shift a narrative a little bit and actually work toward building community, supporting, you know, our family systems, support, you know, we are a Muslim community that many of us live and, you know, uh, you know, go through a whole host of, you know, socioeconomic challenges. What are we doing to uplift folks, you know, instead of engaging in the polemics consistently without any sort of good opinion that we're giving to one another, or giving a good opinion to a believing brother and sister is a fundamental of our faith, right? Mm -hmm. But immediately someone's going to say, well, this guy's performing in order to put on a show for us anyway. So you can't win, you know? You can't no, win. no. But I, I think the, I mean, there are clearly are grounds for um, dialogue with, with those Shia who are, are not understood to be supporting the cursing. And so I, I think that, that that is kind of a red line that might uh, stop some Sunni Muslims engaging in dialogue. On the, on the flip side, on the, 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 on the yeah. flip side, there needs to be folks then who also understand our reality that they have to actually trust us and believe that we're telling the truth, right? On the, on, it goes both ways. It goes both ways, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, and I, and, I, and I think we need more of that. I agree. I agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, that's fascinating. We'll, we'll leave it there. I, I do thank you again for uh, your time, your expertise, and your patience in explaining what must be very frustrating for you having to say this all the time to to uh, to, to Sunni Muslims and so on um, uh, for the, the the nth time that you've done this. But um, obviously, we need to uh, need to keep on pushing this message, I suppose. That's but right. thank you uh, uh, for that. Uh, your time. Take care. Until thank, next thank you so much for having me. Save big on brunch for mom. All in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.